Hello, this is the Russell Moore Podcast, and we are moving through the Bible's first book, the book of Genesis, in our first word series, looking there for the kingdom of Christ. Uh, you know, somebody was talking to me uh, just the other day about uh, the idea of uh, transition, the idea of uh, neutral zones uh, that uh, several people have, have talked about in leadership books about when you get to the point where something's changing, you don't want to uh, start over, you don't know how to start over with some area of your life, and you're, you're kind of scared. Something has ended, but you haven't moved to the new thing yet. And uh, this was somebody who was going through that in his life, and he said, you know, I'm at a point where what God seems to be doing with me is showing me what is over and giving me some awakening toward what's about to happen, but I don't know what that is yet. And so this person was was sort of trying to figure out how to have hope without having a kind of uh, distraction, just to distract himself from what it is that he faced and, and to distract himself from his fear. And, and that's what he said. And I think a lot of us resonate with this. He said, uh, you know, when I'm scared, one of the things that I want to do is just to find something else to occupy my mind with so that I don't think about the fear. But of course, that doesn't work. You know, your, your fear will surface uh, unless you answer it. Uh, with something. And I think that the struggle that this person was going through is uh, is rooted in the very earliest points of human civilization. I mean, we at this point in the book of uh, Genesis, we have gone through uh, the creation account, we've gone through the fall account, and we've gone through this exile where uh, the first incident that takes place is a murder. Uh, from from one brother uh, over another, and now we move into this point where there's kind of that that neutral zone, that that transition point where it's very difficult if you're uh, in the moment to know where is this going and what's going to happen next. We're in exile, and there seems to be some intimations of some hope, but we don't know what it is. And so, I think if you come to this section of Genesis uh, 4, 16, 17, uh, and, and through chapter 5, what you're going to see is a bleak picture with some flashes of hope. That's what we see here. So let's let's read the first part of this, where the Bible says, Cain knew his wife. Remember, this is new, referring to sexual relationship. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Mesuchel, and Methushel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zelah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. Okay, so you're coming to this point where what we see here is the advance of civilization. 
you, you have uh, these sons of Cain who in different aspects are um, are bringing forward agricultural expansion. We've already seen agriculture uh, here really from the very beginning with the commission that God gave to, to Adam and to Eve, and certainly we saw it with, with Cain and Abel, but you see it here as well. Uh, you have uh, agricultural expansion, you have technology, iron and bronze uh, being used, and you have musical arts. Uh, Jubal, you think of the uh, language of jubilation that, that we will uh, that we will have uh, later on. Uh, all of these things are coming out of this next generation, and these are not. I think what God is indicating here is that all of these things—agriculture, technology, art—all of these things are good. Uh, they, they've been used in uh, in bad ways in terms of uh, the way that Cain responded to sacrifice and, and so forth. But I don't think what we see here is an agrarian is good and urban is bad or vice versa. A lot of people see that. We've talked about before. I don't think that's what Genesis is is talking about because all of these things that are mentioned here, God's going to use, for instance, in terms of uh, the temple. He's, he's uh, giving a spirit that's going to equip artisans and equip those who uh, who build to make uh, the temple worship is going to include the harp and the lyre all of these things are are developing and they're taking place in the life of humanity but the other interesting thing is that what Cain does uh, he doesn't just have a son so it's, it's not just that you have the line continuing although you have that uh, it's it, and it's not just, that as the scripture said earlier, he's he's uh, finding a city, he's founding a city, but that he's naming the city after the son. So Cain is moving here from wandering, where he's, he's worried about uh, being killed, to finding this refuge here in the city, he's finding this answer to that fear of death. And he also has a longing for a name and a, a longing for a sense of, uh, of permanence in terms of that name. Now, you, you think about that that's a perennial uh, human sort of longing. That's one of the reasons why uh, you can go into, uh, I was in a church one time where, uh, just, just speaking there, and everything in that church, everything had a little plaque in front of it to say this uh, water fountain was given by Flossie Blankenbaker and this stained glass window was given by so-and-so. And And you said, you had names all over the place uh, named after people who had given the money to that. Well, why? Well, part of it is because uh, you want to honor people who had worked in in certain ways. My uh, home church, the library, uh, was uh, named after a lady who had started the library uh, in the church. So that's part of it. But the other part of it is it's easier to raise money and get people to do things if you promise that you'll name something after them because people want to have this sense that my name is going to go on. People are going to uh, remember me uh, after I'm gone from here. So Cain wants this lasting name. 
he he wants to attach that lasting name to a city. He names it after his his son. Now, again, just as Eve wanting to know good from evil is not in and of itself bad, and just as Eve wanting to be like God is not in and of itself bad, it can be directed towards something that is bad. And I think that's what's happening here. Because the contrast here with Cain is uh, is a contrast with Abraham uh, that we'll see uh, later on. Abraham is uh, longing for a name as well. He has no offspring, no hope of offspring. His name is going to perish off of the uh, off of the face of the earth, and God promises him a future, but. The way that Abraham goes about it is not in the flesh, uh, although he tries with, with Hagar. Instead, it's through promise. And what God says to Abraham is, uh, not only do I give you this son, but he asks Abraham to be willing to sacrifice that son with the hope, as Hebrews says, that God would raise him from the dead. So it, it's coming by the Spirit not coming by the flesh. God is the one who is able to grant this. So trying to clamor for and to secure one's own name and one's own future, one's own uh, permanent place of rootedness uh, doesn't work. You have to give up your life in order to to save it, which is the, the principle that we see in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Uh, for instance, Jesus uh, although he is God, does not count equality with God something to be grasped. But what does he do? He pours himself out, humbles himself, takes on the, the form of a servant, and therefore, uh, even to the point of death, therefore, what has God given him? God has given him life. He's given him safety. He's also given him the name that is above every name. So what Cain seems to be looking for here is a name and he seems to be looking for a lasting city, but he's not pursuing it by faith. So if you come to Hebrews chapter 11, uh, for instance, Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, uh, says this, talking about, uh, talking about our forefathers and foremothers in the faith. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them uh, from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking about that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You see, they, they claim uh, this sense of being strangers and exiles on the earth, and therefore God has provided for them a city that is actually more permanent than the sort of cities that they could have founded or, or sought out on their own because it's a city that, as Hebrews says, cannot be shaken. So uh, Cain wants to resolve the ambiguity of being a refugee. Uh, And so he wants to find a a city. But the way that God prepares people through faith is not by 
removing the ambiguity, but by enabling people to live in the ambiguity as God is preparing something new. So the people of Israel don't go directly from Egypt into the land of of promise. They wander in the wilderness. And you and I don't go directly from faith in Jesus Christ to uh, glory. We, We have this time of Uh, walking through the wildness of the world on a pilgrimage where God is preparing us uh, for what he has for us. So you, you see here that just as the tree of life, apart from God, is not a blessing but a curse. That's why Adam and Eve are exiled. Life without God is death. It it is a curse. So this uh, cultural mandate, this commission and vocation that God has given without faith also ends up being uh, at best futile, doesn't get you what you want. And at worst, uh, it's, it's a curse. So w- what you see Cain looking for here is almost an intimation of that third temptation of Christ. If you will bow down to me, I will give you, Satan says, all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Cain is looking for things that it's right to look for, but he's looking for them in the wrong place. And you see ultimately the manifestation of that uh, in this figure of Lamech, and particularly in what people call the song of the sword here with, with Lamech. It's an odd passage that, that seems to come almost out of nowhere because we have uh, the others mentioned here in, in sort of more general terms. And then you come to Lamech and you have a quote from uh, this, this song. And, and it says, this is what the Bible says. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me, If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Now, uh, this is put in uh, a frame of poetry or a frame of a a song. Songs reveal a lot about what a a culture prizes and and what a culture uh, thinks about, a mood of a particular uh, time. And, and songs have a way of um, have a way of implanting themselves in your mind in in ways that you in ways that other things just don't. Uh, so you have here this uh, this use of art revealing something that's really dark and and it's revealing really multiple things at once. I mean, one of those things is you see the development here of polygamy. So uh, from the beginning, Jesus says, God created them to be male and female, not male and females, plural, or female and males, plural, but male and female, the one for the other. And uh, immediately here, you have that changing and shifting. There are two wives that are being addressed here. That's going to become an issue that we're going to see later on, where the uh, the, the sons of God take the sons of man as their wives. Uh, you're going to, regardless of how that's interpreted, it's a uh, it's an issue of 
marriage as a means to a particular end that's outside of the ends that God has has given. Or you're going to see it later on in the rebellion of the kings. Uh, often that has to do with marriage, either in terms of, uh, as with, with David and Solomon, these multiple uh, wives and these harems of, of concubines, or in terms of um, political sorts of marriage alliances like you have with Ahab and, and Jezebel. Uh, those sorts of things end in downfall. Uh, Lamech already has this uh, taking place. And not just that, but you have murder. So uh, Lamech is talking about his killing of a man and killing of a man, particularly in terms of revenge. What happened here? Uh, We don't know. We just know that what Lamech is doing here is so much more explicit than what Cain did. Uh, I mean, Cain murdered Abel and then hid it and didn't admit to it. Lamech not only does it, but then he boasts about it. So as as one person um, I heard years ago uh, say, what is implied in the father is expressed in the son. Uh, That's certainly true here. What Cain kept quiet, Lamech is is shouting. And so it's, it's not just murder, but it's murder in terms of vengeance. So this person uh, wounded me, and so I have uh, killed him. And he says, my revenge is actually better than the revenge of Cain. Now, this is something that is an ongoing condition of fallen humanity, which is a kind of Darwinism, kind of social Darwinism, that uh, sees the animal world of striking back as being the way of human life and human existence. That's what makes a person strong. That's what makes a person effective. That's the reason why we see, I had uh, a pastor uh, say to me a few months ago that he had uh, a person in his congregation who said, you know, we've tried this turning the other cheek stuff and it doesn't work. Uh, So we've got to try something different. And I mean, he was just echoing, uh, he had heard, I heard a TV evangelist uh, talk about turning the other cheek as being an example of weakness. He was talking about someone he admired who wouldn't turn the other cheek. And I'm sitting here just incredulous because I'm saying turning the other cheek is a direct quotation from Jesus Christ. (laughs) But that's that's the entire point here is that the way of the flesh and the way of fallen humanity doesn't have any other resources than revenge. And it it seems to me that Jesus is probably quoting directly from from this song in Matthew 18, 22, when he's asked, how many times do I forgive? Do I forgive up to seven times? And that's a perfectly legitimate question. Because I think that all of us have had um, have had situations where we've had to forgive the same person multiple times for the same thing. Now, part of that is a misunderstanding of what forgiveness is, uh, which is to say, well, forgiveness means that I allow someone to continue 
in a situation where they're hurting others or hurting hurting me. That's not what forgiveness means. But we've all forgiven people uh, for things multiple times. And there's always this sense of how many times is this going to have to happen? What Jesus does is the exact reverse of Lamech. And to say you forgive seven times, uh, 70 times seven. Now, the way of Lamech seems more alive in the short run than the way of Christ does. Because uh, the way of Lamech is immediate uh, sensory response. So I have a desire for uh, sexual union, and I answer that with lust and rapaciousness. I have a desire for justice, and I answer that with vengeance. Well, that that feels like it's alive because it's this immediate uh, sensation, but it leads to death. It's a way that ultimately leads to death. So what uh, Jesus talks about uh, later on, if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. If you live by revenge, you will die by revenge. Or what the apostle Paul talks about in Galatians 5, you bite at one another, be careful that you do not devour one another. So what you're seeing here in Lamech, even in his boasting and in all of his strength is a picture of the fallenness of humanity. As a matter of fact, uh, it is one of the clearest pictures, as we'll see later on in Romans 1, which is not only do they practice such things, but they give hearty approval to those who do. So sometimes I think that we tend to think of, if you think about evil, the best expression of evil is when you look at the consequences of that evil. So you've got somebody who is involved in um, in using drugs, and the picture of how wrong that is is seeing that person having lost everything in, in a ditch. But in Scripture, you can actually see the with clarity the evil in the way that one glories in the evil. So it, it's not just when somebody is losing. It's when they actually appear to be winning. That's, that's what's happening here. It's a picture of fallenness. But notice, with all of that darkness here in this section, there is also a quest for redemption. So you don't, you don't end here with the line of Cain. It, it goes on, notice in verse 25, to say this, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and she called his name Seth, For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So what's happening here is that Adam is is picturing something. Remember, he, he images God. And so he's imaging God here in terms of fatherhood that there's a procreation is not creation, but it points to it. It it signals it. And this image and likeness, Seth is born in the image and likeness of Adam and Eve. That that points to something about God. The, The naming, they called his name 
Seth in the same way that God had had named them. And there's this picture of hope. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, what does that mean, to call upon the name of the Lord? Well, it gives a sense of, uh, biblically, a sense of being aware of one's uh, need and one's danger and a sense of knowing where to direct that, that cry for deliverance. So think of, for instance, um, the thief on the cross. He recognizes his sentence and he recognizes there's no getting off of this cross. And he turns to Jesus and, and asks for mercy. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's calling upon the name of the Lord. Or think of Simon Peter when he's walking out toward Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He allows him to sink beneath the waves. Well, why does he do that? It's likely because what would have happened, if not for that, is that Simon Peter would have concluded, I also have the sort of authority and power to walk upon the the waves. Jesus shows him his frailty and his fragility and has him call out for Jesus, Lord, have mercy upon me. And he pulls him up out uh, from the waves and the waters. That's, That's what the Spirit does, prompts us to cry out, Abba, Father, to call upon the name of the Lord. And what's important here is not just the calling but the name. So if you think about uh, shamanic uh, practices uh, throughout, uh, you know, just about every culture going back as far as we can see, often we'll use names as a kind of power. Uh, that's uh, one of the reasons why the, uh, the, the demons, when Jesus encounters them, will, will name him. We know who you are. Jesus, the son of the living God, as though they're, they're somehow able to get power over him with his name, which they're, they're not. Calling upon the name of the Lord. The, the interesting thing about this is that biblically, this is not shamanic practice at all, because you don't name God. God names himself. When Moses asks, who should I say sent me? God blasts apart that understanding of having power over him with his name. and says, I am that which I am. That's, that's how you describe me. And then he gives to himself this covenant name. Uh, the, the angel says to Mary, you shall call his name Jesus. So uh, they're not naming him the way that Adam and Eve are naming Seth. This is, this is a naming of the self in terms of God. And the the calling, the people here are beginning to call upon the name of the Lord, which is picked up later in the scripture. I mean, think of uh, the book of Romans, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's the same principle here. There there has to be a sense of, uh, of danger and the inability of the self to rescue oneself. You have to call upon the name of the Lord. I had a woman come to me one time and say, all right, I guess I'll go ahead and become a Christian. 
And she said, it was just sort of, you know, almost like I was a telemarketer. And she said, all right, I'll go ahead and buy this timeshare. And I said, well, wait a minute, why? And she said, well, I've become convinced that Jesus really was raised from the dead. And if Jesus is really raised from the dead, then that means he was telling the truth about himself. And he's telling the truth about himself. He's telling the truth about God. And that means that God is powerful enough to send me to hell. And I think God's wrong. I don't think there's anything wrong with what I have done. I don't think I have uh, earned death or anything like it, but uh, he's more powerful than I am. So I'm going to go ahead and become a Christian. Well, that's not becoming a Christian. I mean, that's that's not repentance uh, of sin, just to say, I think you're more powerful uh, than me. Therefore, I'm going to yield to you. That's not how God comes to us. He doesn't come to us as a, an intimidating mob lord or bully or, or something like that. Instead, what repentance is, is starting with an agreement that God is right in terms of his judgment and that that I don't have the power to get myself out of this situation. The people who are being fruitful and multiplying, but they're being fruitful and they're multiplying into death. That's what, uh, that's why you have these genealogies. The important thing about these genealogies is not so-and-so was born, it's that and-so-and-so died. So this, this, um, the, the wages of death, they are continuing to go on and humanity cannot reproduce itself out of this death. But the people are starting to call upon the name of the Lord. And not only that, you have uh, a, a mysterious picture here of God responding with favor in space and time. So in uh, in Genesis 5 here, it talks about this mysterious figure of Enoch who walked with God and God took him. And I mean, there, there are all sorts of extra biblical writings about Enoch, but this is, this is all that we see here until later. Again, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11, 5 uh, says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So you see Enoch here escaping death in some mysterious way. And although the, the Genesis account is, is so straightforward and, and uh, lacking in detail, the Hebrews account here sounds a lot uh, like the Elijah account. Remember, Elijah does not see death, but Elijah is taken up in a whirlwind of, of glory uh, into the heavenly places, and he's not found. And so one of the things that, that happens is that there's a search party uh, that's sent out to try to find Elijah, and they can't find him after three days. Uh, so God is, is sparing them uh, from death. He's He's, I think, giving a picture in the life of Enoch that death is not now the inevitable end, that death is an enemy and that death is an enemy to be defeated. But the way that he's going to defeat it is not in the way of Enoch, not by just uh, exempting people from death. Instead, it's by Jesus who doesn't escape death, 
but goes right through it. He goes right through death on behalf of the world. And so God here is showing us death is not something that's just a a natural part of human life in terms of the way God designed it to be. It is in our experience, but it's not the way that God designed it to be. And that there is hope from deliverance from death. So if you think about what's happening here in this passage that we just read, what you see is the fear of death working itself out in two completely different ways. So that you have a fleshly response to fear of death that does what? That tries to distract from it. And so I become uh, strong and uh, powerful and murderous and filled with revenge and filled with, with lust. That's one way to distract oneself from fear of death. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. Doesn't keep death off. And then there's another way, though that doesn't try to distract oneself from fear of death, but calls upon the name of the Lord and looks to the name of the Lord with faith. Okay, this is really similar to what the Apostle Paul is going to talk about in terms of the gospel. It's an aroma of life unto life and death unto death, life unto those who are, who are saved and death unto those who are perishing. God is at work, but the response of faith is the response that leads to life. And the response of that, that response of, of pulling back from the light that Jesus talks about in John 3, hesitant about the light and fearful of the light because our deeds are evil. Well, that leads to death. So what's happening in this neutral zone, this time after Eden, but before Canaan, this time after Adam, but before even Abraham, uh, is really similar to what may be happening in your life right now. God may be at work, and the question is, are you uh, looking in faith and moving toward what God is doing, or are you just trying to distract yourself from it with the flesh? Thanks for listening to this episode. If you haven't yet, uh, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or Pocket Cast or wherever you listen. And if you're listening on a smartphone, uh, tap on the cover art and you'll find show notes, including some details that you might have missed. And we'll pick uh, right back up here in Genesis uh, next time here on First Word. This is Russell Moore. Onward. Onward.